Good morning, Journey. And I, I just have to say, uh, it feels so good to be able to start my sermon standing up here and not standing behind that door waiting to sing Mr. Rogers. I kid you not, I was sitting there holding that doorknob and I was breathing so hard, trying not to hyperventilate. And it's like, as soon as she hits that note, I have to walk out there. I was so scared, but it was so fun. And I'm so glad that I did it. I think I might try Whitney Houston next time, kind of challenge my vocal range a little bit. That's kind of what I'm thinking. Week three in our series that we're calling Neighboring. And kind of the big idea around this sermon series is what if, what if we took the great commandment of Jesus seriously and maybe even literally when he said that the most important thing, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and just like it is loving your neighbor as yourself. If that's the most important thing, what if we made that the most important thing to us? I've loved over the last couple of weeks, people sending texts and messages and feedback and things that they're wrestling with around this whole neighboring idea. Uh, I had this one text that I asked if I could share. This is a leader in our church and a leader in our community. And the reason I want to share this is because this is what I'm praying for. This is what I've been praying for around this series. He said, hey, Bob, I'm totally convicted by the neighboring series. Wow. It's changed the way I look at those around me. Even my, quote, neighbors in the office, those sitting next to me in a restaurant or in a meeting. We are surrounded by neighbors everywhere, and we have opportunities to share God's love continually. Like I said, convicting when I look at how many chances I let slip by. Anyways, I just wanted to share my encouragement with you. That's why we're praying around this series. Because if Journey Church is going to reach our redemptive potential, it's going to take every one of us having this kind of a response to the great commandment, that we begin to see with our own eyes the things that Jesus saw when he saw people. And our hearts would start to break and move toward people that need love, not only from God, but they need love from us. We need eyes to see. And when Jesus was here, he said to his disciples, he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Not very many of them have the kind of heart and eyes that we're talking about. But then he said this, he said, pray, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest field. That's what this series is about. We were praying that we would be an answer to that prayer that Jesus is asking us to pray, that we would be laborers in the harvest. And Jesus was a unique leader, an incredibly unique leader. Other religious leaders, kind of their motto or idea is, I'm gonna tell you how to find God. I'm gonna point to God and tell you how to find him. Jesus, very different. Jesus said, I am God, and I'm coming to find you. Jesus is the kind of God that said, I'm leaving heaven, I'm moving into the neighborhood because I am about people. He came to be the best neighbor ever. The best neighbor ever. So if we are gonna be the best neighbor ever, we've got to look at the life and ministry of Jesus. What did he do to be a great neighbor? 
We're going to look at a story today that's one of my favorite in the New Testament, but I've never actually preached on this here at Journey, so I'm excited to get... But here's the problem, is I think this text of Scripture, this story, could be the text for this whole sermon series. So I'm trying to distill it down to a few key principles, key neighboring qualities that we see in the life of Jesus. And the story is oftentimes referred to as the woman at the well from John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. I'm going to read through the whole story, and then I'm going to look back, and we're going to make some observations. It's kind of a long story, so buckle in. Here we go. John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, but you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Imagine there's a pause while she thinks. She says, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband She replied, Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you are now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Imagine then a longer pause, a more awkward pause, maybe uncomfortable. She's thinking, maybe I want to change the subject. She says, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but the Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking to her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. 
Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and they made their way toward him. Three neighboring qualities that we see in the life of Jesus. The first is an incredible humility. Incredible humility. One of the striking features of this conversation with the Samaritan woman is that the conversation even happened in the first place. This would be so unusual for this conversation to have ever taken place. And the woman, is she is caught off guard, she's completely shocked. Remember what we read. She said, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. She's caught off guard. And we talk a little bit, often, about this idea that the Jews and the Samaritans had this rivalry. Why? What was the deal with the Jews and the Samaritans? Let me try to encapsulate that a little bit. There was a time centuries before this story takes place when the Jews were captured by the Babylonians and they were exiled away from their land. And then there was a time when they came back into their land. They came out of exile. But there were some that chose to stay in Babylon. And here's what they did. They intermarried with some of the Canaanite tribes that were around there, and they formed a new tribe of people called the Samaritans. Well, now the the Jews are looking at this group of people over there, and they're saying, you are impure. You have gone away from our national identity, and you've intermingled with other cultures. And then they also did this, this new culture, this Samaritan culture, they did what they call what we call syncretism. They took some of their Jewish faith and they mixed it with some of the pagan religions around them. So they syncretistically came up with this new way of worshiping. So the Jews just said, not only are you racially impure now, but you're also heretical. You're not worshiping Yahweh the way God wants to be worshiped. That was the first reason why this was a difficult conversation that Jesus had because Jews and Samaritans were separated from then on. They didn't love or trust one another. That's one of the reasons. But to top that off, this was scandalous because Jesus was talking to a woman. Now, this might not seem unusual to us, but in those days, a rabbi would never touch or even talk to a strange woman, someone that he doesn't know. And so when the disciples come up, they're like, whoa, 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 rabbi, you're kind of playing fast and loose here with the rules. Why is it that you're talking with her? None of them said anything, but they wanted to say something. They wanted to say, what is it that you want? Like, like she's bothering him in some way. Or they wanted to say, rabbi, why are you talking to her? This doesn't make any sense. But he was talking to her. He was crossing another barrier. Not only the racial barrier that she was a Samaritan, but she was a woman breaking through another barrier. But that's not the last barrier. There's a detail that John gives us in this story before the story starts that's actually relatively significant. He says that this story took place at the sixth hour, meaning that it was noon. It was the middle of the day. Why is that significant? It's significant because that is not the time of day that the women in that culture would come and get water from the well. What they would do is they would get up early in the morning and they would go as a group together. It was a social time for them. They would get the water in the morning so that they could go home and have all the water that they needed for all of the things that they were doing in and around their house for the day. And it was their opportunity to connect 
and love and get to know other people in their community. So why? Why was this woman alone in the middle of the day? Five husbands. She had a reputation in the community. So not only was she a Samaritan that was outcast from the Jews, not only were there barriers gender-wise that would keep Jesus from talking to her, she had a moral reputation. Even within this outcast people, she was an outcast, Samaritan, morally impure. I can't prove it, but I think she was a Packer fan. Email John, don't email me. Do you see the heart of Jesus? He breaks down barriers. Racial barriers, he breaks through them. Cultural barriers, he's breaking through them. Gender barriers, he's breaking through them. All the barriers, moral barriers. Jesus is breaking through every one of them. Do you see how radical this is that this conversation ever took place? It's a beautiful picture of the heart of Jesus. If we're going to love our neighbors, how many barriers should exist between us and them? Zero. Whatever barriers exist, Jesus is saying, tear them down. Every one of them. Humbly move toward people. And you've you've got to understand the life of Jesus as well, because this this story is not like a a one-off story where the disciples would say, you remember that one time that Jesus broke through barriers and reached out to people? It was how he lived every day of his life. When little kids would be running up to him and the disciples are like, get away, get away. This is the rabbi. Come on, parents, take care of your kids. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Let them come to me. And they did. They loved him. He was so approachable and available. He was open to interruptions. When lepers would come up, and lepers would have to come up, and they would say, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. Nobody would touch them, nobody would go near them, even look their way. What did Jesus do? He goes right to them. He touches them, and he heals them. We we, we talk about it all the time, the friends that Jesus had, the notorious sinners of the day. That's who he sat with. He didn't sin with them, but he sat with them. They were his friends. That's why he had the reputation that he was a glutton and a drunkard because of who he hung out with. He broke down barriers. Friends, if we're gonna be the best neighbors ever, we gotta get about breaking down any barriers that exist between us and the people around us. So my question would be, what is your posture towards your neighbors. Like if you think about what's in your heart toward them. I mean, do you have your arms crossed when you think about your neighbor? Do you shaking your head, rolling your eyes? Do you whisper and complain? Do you gossip about your neighbors? Are there barriers between you and them? Because here's what I see in the life of Jesus. He says, we can't do that. We can't just tolerate our neighbors We've got to esteem our neighbors. We've got to value them. We've got to move toward them. I love how the Apostle Paul said it in Philippians chapter two, talking about the humility of Jesus in this section. 
He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. What's in the heart of Jesus? He doesn't just tolerate neighbors. He sees the beauty in them. He sees the dignity in them. He sees the value in every soul that is created in his image. And he loves them and he moves toward them. I just read this and I look at this and I think I've got no excuses. I've got no excuses not to move toward and love neighbors around me. Jesus broke barriers and friends, we have to do the same. And this is how we love people. This is how we humbly love people. He gave them his time. He intentionally gave him, gave them his time. Here's the question that I have for Jesus. If I could ask him a question, I really want to know, Jesus, did you know she was going to be there? Did you know ahead of time that she was going to be there? Because here's what I look at in the life of Jesus. He had some pretty important things going on in his life. Can, can we say that? I mean, he's got a three-year window where he's building into the lives of these disciples, these men and women. They're going to carry this movement on beyond his death. He's got to invest in them. He's got to take every opportunity because they're not always getting it. We, we, we read the stories. They're not always getting it. Wouldn't it have been great for him to have had an opportunity to go with them to get food? another teaching opportunity along the way, another chance for him to again talk about what the kingdom of God is like. But what does Jesus do? He sends them away to get food and he's sitting at a well, chilling. He's just chilling, waiting. Was water his priority? I don't think, we would never even find out if he ever gets a drink. I think there was a woman that was his priority. And it wasn't even his disciples that were heading to town. This woman deserves my time. He made time for one, for one outcast. He made time. Here's what I believe is true for us, for many of us. If we're really gonna think about what it means to be the best neighbor ever, we're gonna to start to feel some tension. And here's gonna be one of the tension points for us. You're gonna look me right in the, eye, in the eye and say, Bob, I, I love all those ideas. I don't have time. You don't get it, but I've got so many relationships in my life already, and I'm not even hitting all those out of the park. And you're asking me to, to start to think about my neighbors, the eight people that live around me, and start to invest in one, two, three, five, six, seven, eight new relationships and families. Bob, I have no time. I hear you. I feel that same tension too. But here's the questions that I'm asking myself, and I need to ask you as well. Are you living your life at a pace that doesn't allow any margin to create room for people in your life, for your neighbors? Are you living your life at that kind of a pace? And for many of you, you just say, yes, absolutely, that's how I feel. Well, then I've got to ask a harder question then. Are you willing to adjust? Are you willing to adjust your life 
to make room. Like I'm actually talking about eliminating some things in your life to make room for people. Because here's what I see in the life of Jesus. He was the healthiest person that ever lived. But there's a word that I never associate with Jesus, and it's the word hurry. When you just watch his life, when you read about his life, it never seems like Jesus is in a hurry. He's never frantic. He's always got time to love. Not in a hurry. Here's what I believe is true. Love and hurry, they don't mix. You can't love people the way that Jesus loved people and be in a hurry because they need time. Here's how John Ortberg says it in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted. He said, love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible. Love always takes time. And time is the one thing hurried people don't have. Have you ever been in those conversations and you just sense that the person across from you is trying to get out of the conversation? They want to move on to something else? Do you feel loved? No. You don't feel loved. You feel loved when people are willing to give you their time. And I realize, friends, the things that I am saying right now, the things that I am asking of us, the things that I'm talking about, they are not easy to do. To actually try to create space in your life for people, I think it's going to take an incredible amount of courage to just even think about reprioritizing things in your life. And I think it's going to take an incredible amount of sacrifice because you're going to have to say no to some things. Maybe it's no to some things that you love in order to love who Jesus asks you to love? Are you willing to reprioritize your life and eliminate some things? In this book that Brian and I have been reading around this series, The Art of Neighboring, there was a quote that just grabbed me. I've been wrestling with it. He says this, in this life, we can only do a few things really well. You know, we can't do everything well, but if we can only do a few things really well, he said, I think it's a good idea to make certain that one of those things is what Jesus says is most important. And if Jesus says this is the most important thing, I think we owe it to ourselves, we owe it to people to try to get really good at being the best neighbor ever. Because my wife and I were just, we're, we're engaging this as well, and one of the things we did this last week is, you know, we have eight people that live around us. We sent out an invitation to them and just said, hey, we're going to be around the fire pit on Thursday night if you guys are no pressure, but if you're around, we'd love to hang out with you. We had three or four couples that came. We had a great, great evening. Uh, one of the couples, uh, we didn't know very well, they're new uh, in the neighborhood, but one of the things I found out about him is he loves the Texas Longhorns. And so he asked me, he said, do you want to come watch the Texas Longhorn game on Saturday afternoon? Here's the deal for me. On weekends that I preach, I spend a lot of time on Saturday doing the best job I can to get ready for Sunday. So I'm thinking, my, my first thought in my mind was, I, I can't do that on Saturday. I'm sorry. And then in the back of my mind, I mean, I, I'm already down the road on my sermon. I know what I'm going to talk about. Am I really going to stand up in front of my spiritual family and say, I had this choice. I could go watch the Texas Longhorns with my neighbor, or I'm going to sit here and write a sermon about what it means to love my neighbor and make time for them while I'm not doing it. 
I was like, God, your sense of humor is awesome. It's like, God, I'll do the best job I can with the sermon, but I'm watching the Longhorns. And if you guys saw that game, unbelievable, unbelievable, absolutely beautiful. We've got to make time. We've got to figure out how to eliminate things in our life to make time for people. The last thing that Jesus did is he offered himself with authenticity, beautiful authenticity. He offered her life. He offered her life. He revealed himself and made himself available to her from the very beginning of the conversation. In verse 10, I'm gonna remind you what he said. Jesus answered her and says, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus wanted her to understand from the get-go, salvation is a gift. This living water that I'm talking about, it is a gift. He does everything to make this so clear to her. Salvation is a gift that we receive. It is not a wage that we earn. It's not something that we can work for or earn. What disqualifies us from earning a wage, not doing the work? What disqualifies us from receiving a gift, not being willing to take it, not being willing to grab a hold of it? What keeps us from grabbing a hold of this gift of God? I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but I think the biggest thing that we have to overcome is pride. We have to overcome pride to receive a gift, especially the gift of salvation. Because people think, I don't need it. I don't need that. I'm doing just fine by myself. Or I'm going to save myself. I'm going to work really hard. And I don't want to owe anybody anything, including God. I'm going to work for it. And Jesus says, if that's your perspective, you've missed it. You've completely missed it. It is the gift of God. And we humbly receive it. And I think why this is so important is if we haven't ever come to the place where we have just humbly received what Jesus has done for us, his death in our place to pay the penalty for our sin, if we haven't humbly grabbed a hold of it, it makes it really difficult for us to humbly offer it to other people. It's when we have that genuine encounter with Jesus, where he starts to change us from the inside out as we put our trust in him. When we grab a hold of that, then we're able to offer that with the same humility that Jesus offered it. He offered her the good news. How did she feel about it? She felt great about it, even though he said some challenging things. It was a pleasant surprise to her who this man was and what he did for her. Contrast that with maybe a stereotype in your mind that you have of people that bring the good news with kind of this coercive proselytizing that leave people feeling condescended to talked down to, and this bitter experience. It's so different than what people experienced with Jesus. 
And why do I know? Why do I believe that she had that kind of a great encounter with Jesus? What did she do? She took the neighboring of Jesus and she went and became the best neighbor ever to the people in her town. Verse 28, this is what it says. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? What'd they do? They came out of the town and they made their way toward him. And if you read the rest of the story, many believed because of the testimony of this woman. She began to neighbor. And what was her invitation? She didn't say, hey, let's go do some religious activities. Let's go follow some rules. Let's get our life together. Five steps to the new you. That wasn't her message. She just simply said, come see a man. Come see a man. That is our invitation to the world. Not to talk down with them, but just, would you just come see Jesus? Would you just come look at the life of Jesus with me? See what it is that he's like. See what it is that he does. And tell me that you wouldn't want to receive that gift from him. A few months ago, uh, this was before COVID in February, my wife and I had the opportunity to travel with uh, another couple from our church. We went down to Arizona to visit some friends that were there, uh, Kelly and Sandy, and they just do an amazing job of neighboring. Uh, They live in a community down there and they do life with the people that are around them. And what I loved about it is when we went down there on vacation, they just invited us into the neighboring things that they're doing. We got to know their neighbors as well. There was one couple that was there, Barry and Regina, and we got to know them during our time there. And one of the nights uh, that we were there, um, I wasn't feeling great, and so I went to bed early, and so they were having a conversation after I left, and Barry asked Carmen, uh, what does your husband do? And she said, he's a pastor. I don't think he believed her. I don't think I put out the pastor vibe. I think his comment was something like, but he actually seems like he's fun. You know, I don't know, pastors must have a, a bad reputation out there. But here's what I've watched and seen with Kelly and Sandy and Barry and Regina, that this neighboring, this relationship that they had with them eventually came to the place where they said, you know that guy that was here uh, he's the pastor of our church back. And, they, and she invited them to watch online and watched online at Easter and just to watch their relationship now. They engage around the sermon. Sometimes they talk about the reflection questions when there's challenges that are given. Sometimes they work on those together. It's a beautiful picture of investing in people and then inviting them into your world. Not every conversation that you're going to have is a Jesus conversation. They probably had lots of conversations with Barry and Regina that didn't have anything to do with Jesus, but there were, ultimately there was an invitation, come and see a man. Not me, we're talking about Jesus. Come and see a man. So you, what are you going to do? What are you going to do to move toward becoming the best neighbor ever? Here's my encouragement to you. Just do 
something. Just do something. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be magnanimous. But just do something, even one small baby step. Move toward people. Invest and invite. Think about that story of the loaves and the fishes where Jesus is able to take even little things, small things, and multiply it into big things. Baby steps. And think about the long haul. Baby steps over time changes people, changes our world. Just do something. And if you don't know what to do, we're talking about this neighboring guidebook. If you go to journeyweb.net slash neighboring, you can read that. And there's ideas in there on what you can do. And you probably have even better ideas than those. Share those back with us. What are the great ideas? But maybe you're already responding like Bob, the, the second point that about intentionality and giving people time. Remember, I don't have time. Here's my encouragement to you. If you feel like you don't have time, just invite people into the things that you're already doing. If you like to hike, invite people to hike with you. If you like to work out, invite someone to come with you. If you like to eat, who doesn't like to eat? We're doing that all week long, lots of different times. Have a meal with a neighbor, hunt, bake, fire pits, whatever it is that you do, invest and invite. Come and see a man. Just do something this week because you don't know. You don't know what that could mean to another person, even your small little step. People are struggling right now, friends. I read some statistics that just said 42% of adults say that anxiety right now is affecting all of their major relationships. 39% of adults are saying depression, the same thing. Over 50% of adults say they are experiencing extreme loneliness every week. Invest and invite. Just do something. About three months ago, uh, I was at the gym and there was a guy named Michael that uh, I didn't know very well, but he was just a fun, nice guy. We would work out uh, next to each other. We're kind of getting to know him a little bit. And there's a group of us at the gym and we hang out a lot. So at one point we just said, uh, we should just invite Michael to, to come hang out with us. And I just said, well, I'll, I'll do that. And when got his number, uh, texted him and we just set something up and went and had some sushi together. It was just a, a great time. And then not long after that, Michael and I had the chance to sit down and I got to hear his story, just the story of his life. I wish I had time to share it and someday I will share it maybe in its full um, but I got a chance to hear his story. But there was one thing that he said to me in the midst of our conversation when we had lunch that day. He said, Bob, you saved my life. And that kind of catches you off guard a little bit. And then uh, we had lunch probably another month later and, and he, just, he said the same thing again. And so when I asked him if I could, if I could share about him today, I, I just said, could you, could you unpack that with me? And he said, I want to be clear what I meant by that. And so I want to just read Michael in his own words. He said, I would say that you may have saved my life. My point wasn't that you actually saved my life or possibly saved my life as much as it was that I was alone and struggling as a recovered alcoholic in a new town during covid I know that my spiritual condition keeps me sober, which includes God and a community. 
Without a community, I'm vulnerable and on a slippery slope. You reached out and invited me in. You listened to my story. I now have a new community that I'm participating in. I feel connected and less vulnerable. You very well could have saved my life. Who knows? It was, it was also at a point in my life where I was reaching out in my personal life and asking God for help. I find it ironic that a pastor from Journey reached out to me when I needed it the most. Maybe not ironic, but you know what I mean. Was that a big thing that I did? Getting a number and just saying, hey, come have some sushi with us? No. It's a small thing. Small things can have a big effect in the life of another person. Just do something this week. Let's pray. Jesus, I am so grateful that you are the one that can take a few loaves and a few fish and can multiply it into something that feeds thousands upon thousands. I pray right now, Holy Spirit, everyone in this room and everyone watching online, that you would be speaking to their heart and giving them one small thing to do this week. That there would be something stirring in their heart that would compel them to just do something. Jesus, thank you for your example. Thank you that you ripped down barriers. Will you teach us how to do the same? Will you help us identify any barriers that might exist between us and the people around us? Would you give us courage and tenacity to just rip them down day after day? Jesus, would you give us courage to make time for people? You loved people, Jesus, by giving them your time. We're going to love people by giving them our time. Jesus, would you help us multiply our time, eliminate things in our life, reprioritize whatever it takes for us to make room for people. Jesus, we love you. Thank you that you came for us. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.